Welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by Segmentify. So hello everyone. This is Carlos again for another episode of the e-commerce growth show USA. Today I'm joined by my good friend Scott Emans and Rick Watson. So Scott, would you please introduce Scott, uh, Rick, and then we get started. Great. Thank you, Carlos. And uh, uh, great to have you uh, uh, with us today, Rick. Uh, for our audience that uh, don't know Rick, Rick Watson founded RMW Commerce Consulting uh, after a 20-year career as a technology entrepreneur uh, uh, and an expert in the e-commerce uh, industry. He's worked with companies in the past like Channel Advisor, Barnes & Noble, Merchantry, and Pitney Bowes. Today, uh, we find, you know, uh, uh, Rick's work centered around supporting investors, management teams, uh, and incubating and growing direct-to-consumer businesses. Uh, Rick is a rich source of content and insights on retail and e-commerce, uh, and was recently recognized as a top 100 retail influencer by Rethink Retail, which makes it even more of an honor that I also received that recognition. So uh, welcome again, Rick. Thanks a lot, Scott and, and Carlos. It's good to be on. Right. So, uh, uh, Rick, you know, when, you know, I go and research, you know, a guest, uh, you know, before a show, you know, a lot of times I, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not super familiar with what they've been up to. That's not necessarily true uh, in your case, uh, because I follow you and, and read uh, your posts and content and, and your podcasts and these things all the time. Uh, so I was really excited uh, when I saw, uh, you know, that Carlos had lined you up uh, to come join us and, and chat with us for a bit uh, this morning. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the first part of the show, maybe we'll focus in on some of the news that's happening. There is a lot going on uh, mm -hmm. in the world and in the world of e-commerce, uh, especially. Uh, here we are and, uh, you know, at least it feels like a lull in the pandemic. Uh, here in the U.S. anyway, uh, you know, we have a, a little bit of, a, you know, a window where everybody seems to be getting around and trying to, you know, be back to normal. And, you know, that's exciting and uh, uh, fun. And, you know, we, we see, uh, you know, a, a lot of activity in retail, which let me start with one that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, the amazing news that uh, the uh, Nima Marcus and Farfetch uh, partnership and, you know, I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, I, I think they're, so that's an interesting question. Uh, Farfetch has obviously been a kind of growing uh, cross-border e-commerce player with their, you know, very well-positioned luxury uh, fashion cross-border marketplace, which there aren't that many of them in the world. You have to, you know, as soon as you, you have to start talking about companies like Tmall and JD to get to the level of luxury and, and fashion and, and other types of things that are available cross-border. Um, so I think the one side of it is um, Farfetch has been quietly incubating this cross-border platform services business. So not just being a marketplace, but being a, a service provider. And that was, um, they really made a big splash in there several years back with uh, Harrods. And you know they managed you know managed the entire Harrods cross border e commerce business, um, which is a pretty large business uh, for, for for anyone. And I think they are always looking for new customers in that space. So expanding their revenue there is sort of one side of this. The other side of this is, um, and and probably the prime mover of this is Neiman's is out there looking for funding, 
And I don't, I don't think this deal would have happened on its own, or, or maybe it happened kind of independently in both directions, but probably the, the bigger mover is Neiman's who uh, came out of bankruptcy two years ago and you know did retire a huge amount of debt. And obviously a lot of retailers had been, had been in trouble in the, in the last few years and Neiman's was not immune to that coming out of bankruptcy. It really makes sense for them to look for a strategic investor that kind of believes in the vision that it's aligned to luxury, but also could present, give them opportunities. So that's, that's probably where I would start the conversation. Great, great insight. And, you know, look, from my own perspective and having been an insider, you know, on, and on the name from the Nima Marcus side up until the end of 2018, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the technical platform that Farfetch brings to the table, you know, besides the $200 million cash infusion, which, you know, that's nothing to scoff at, but the fact that they're bringing their technology platform to the table uh, uh, and I guess, you know, they talk about, well, we're going to put Bergdorf Goodman on it. Uh, you know, well, Bergdorf Goodman's on the same platform today as Neiman Marcus dot com as well so right. uh, i i would think that yeah maybe they're going to start with Bergdorf goodman but uh, you know i would i would suspect that you know everything goes that way if that if that if that goes well right yeah uh, uh and and look you know neiman's they they had a, a you know a, a very adept internal technical team and were very good at building all this stuff themselves uh, and, and sometimes I think, you know, uh, that took away from the focus of being a great luxury retailer, to be quite honest, because, uh, you know, they had so much invested, you know, in technology. And now, you know, as they move towards, you know, more services oriented uh, approach, you know, this, this Farfetch uh, deal looks like a, a, a really good marriage to me. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of gets back to what are you? Are you a technology company or are you a retailer? And most retailers that are not named Amazon have no business being trying to be technology companies, uh, because even if you can build something, usually it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And even if for a brief moment, it's best in class, the chances of it remaining best in class for years to come is. That's uh, the problem. Yeah, that's that's the big problem. That's the that, problem that, that people get around. And so yeah. as your business changes, you realize that, oh, rather than just going to ask my vendor or picking a different vendor and plugging in a new one. Now I'm having to refactor this massive code base that I built up over the past five or 10 years or longer sometimes. That's a that's a that's a technology debt that is hard to keep up with. Uh, and you know, I've seen that firsthand. Uh, and so understand that and, 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 and understand the allure uh, of, uh, you know, looking at, you know, at platforms, right. You know, that, uh, I, 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 you know, outsourcing some of those capabilities, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that would lead us, you know, into, you know, some recent, uh, th uh news, uh, you were in your podcast talking about target. Uh, and your, your target uh, discussion uh, was really centered around them being, you know, data centric and, you know, uh, they employ an army of data scientists and no surprise there. I think, you know, we've, we've, we've seen this, uh, you know, across the industry that uh, everybody recognizes that uh, if you don't have great data about your customers, uh, you have a hard time uh, uh, being successful uh, in this business. Uh, I, but I, let me tell you, one of the things that I, I took from that, that discussion uh, uh, was you talked about how Target has moved from a huge outsource model, mm -hmm. and I was I was aware of that. In fact, one of my 
bosses at uh, Neiman Marcus was a former Target executive. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was well aware of that outsource philosophy and uh, uh, that he even brought some of that with him uh, to Neiman Marcus, to be honest. There was a lot of outsourcing going on at, at Neiman's at the time as well. Uh, and, and so now uh, they're almost 100% insourced is, is what caught my uh, eye. So is that a trend, you think, across the industry? Is it unique to Target? What's going on with that? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the pendulum, like, <laughs> we just had the opposite conversation about Neiman's, right? And, yeah. and I think the pendulum goes, uh, you know, kind of swings both ways over time in a company's history. And I think what Target found was that if you kind of go back to 2013, what happened in Target's history? They had one of the largest credit card data breaches in, in retail history, period. And, and I think they found I themselves- lived, I lived through one of those. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they, they found themselves in quite a bit of trouble um, with, with consumers and, and, and everyone. And so as Brian Cornell came on and you know, they hired new leadership and and built out their management team. I, I think what they saw was in-source, outsource, innovation has to be the priority. And you can't innovate without data these days. And they started putting in place those sorts of capabilities so that we can, you know, they can move the teams forward. I think it's, if, if you look at how they've set themselves up, it's, it's a very Amazon-like structure uh, where you have autonomous teams that are responsible for small pieces of, you know, small to mid-sized pieces of functionality that are releasing new uh, enhancements all the time. Uh, you know, that sounds like a startup and it, it sounds a lot like how Amazon innovates. And I'm sure some of that is outsourced too, but you, you know, you need control over your own destiny and you need to be innovating quickly regardless of what's in your pipeline. Now the problem, so I live through you know, the all in all in-house to almost all outsourced world. In fact, uh, when uh, I, the, the Neiman Marcus IT infrastructure was outsourced, I was one of the 19 remaining employees after that, pro that very stressful process, by the way. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, so I, I lived through the going to the outsource model. Uh, one of the things that's not even, I don't really feature on my resume, but, uh, you know, at mm. one point I was the transition manager as we went from one huge uh, Indian, mm. you know, uh, IT outsourcer to another one. We, you know, once after our five-year contract was up and we decided we weren't getting what we wanted out of vendor one, we went to vendor mm. two, right? Uh, so I've, I've lived deep in that world of outsource. Mm. And so the long way around to the question is, right, as part of your discussion about Target, you mentioned that that, that whole they wanted to be in control of their destiny. But that was the promise of outsourcing was you were going to get, mm -hmm. you know, cheaper labor, but with mm -hmm. all the same skill sets and you were going to be able to do all the same things just better and faster. Right. Um, so is that just that's just not possible to realize, you think? I, I think it, look, if it's, if it's being realized, it's. It's not often, <laughs> put it that way, because I think what happens with a lot of these teams is it becomes a ticketing system. And the, the, the teams think about it that way, they're executing it, and the business certainly thinks about it that way because that's their reality. <laughs> you know, they go, they go to a portal or they send an email, they say, I want X project. It's not a collaborative, dynamic innovation environment by any stretch of the imagination, unless the business 
responsibilities also in that organization, um, or the, the company might have a local presence that's near those suppliers. You know, for instance, there's nothing, you know, Apple, despite doing a lot of its own manufacturing, one of their biggest manufacturing is outsourced to Foxconn. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they just say like, oh, whatever Foxconn comes up with, we're going to be okay with. No, like Apple has its own <laughs> very talented people. And obviously Foxconn does or else they wouldn't be a supplier to Apple. And they need to be co you know, in some cases, co-location really matters, um, particularly when you have responsibility for an important project. It's, it's hard to talk to that person every week and assume things are going well. I guess it'd be safe to say that maybe it's that, you know, the, the, the lesson is pick your, pick your battles on where you want to send that, you know, that work outside of your doors. Uh, obviously, no retailer wants to, you know, go build their own cloud. Right. You know, and, and so obviously, uh, you know, that that gets outsourced to Microsoft or Google or whoever. Right. Uh, 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 whoever it is, uh, is your platform provider. Uh, and the same with this, you know, kind of e-commerce sort of thing. I think it's interesting. I guess we'll see. Uh, like yeah. I said, I'm going to I'm watch I'll watch this Farfetch thing with with great interest, you know, circling back around. But uh, uh, really interesting times and it's been fun to live through those pendulum swings i have to say uh, and, right. and, and and the pendulum definitely tends to overswing, uh and the answer is probably more in the middle uh, of that right. arc right yeah yeah look there's no there's no one single answer i think to your point differentiation i think profitability i think reason to exist uh those are all things that are i think core to that decision and if you look at something like could Target, would Target be successful today if they outsource all their shipping to UPS, um, you know, an integrate, you know, an end-to-end -end provider rather than taking control of their own supply chain, you know, when their stores are such a integral part of who they are and their biggest costs are in supply chain, it's really hard to outsource that if that's part of your core DNA and your, your, your shopper promise and something that drives your, you know, the, the main part of your P&L. Right. Right. Okay. Well, moving on, uh, another uh, recent topic uh, I, uh, I saw you post about was the red warning lights flashing on economy from recent retail earnings call. Uh, and, and, you know, that caught my eye and, you know, I dived into that. And uh, it, let me tell you that the thing that really caught my uh, uh interest uh was uh when you it started referencing 2008 uh in that uh, <laughs> uh, in that uh, you know especially after having lived through 2008 as a retailer myself where right. i always describe that time as we burn the furniture to keep the lights on uh, uh it was horrible <laughs> so so tell me what, what what's what's going to happen do you think what's your take yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm no economist or, you know, you know, or anything like that, but I, you know, I pay attention to what the retail CEOs are, are thinking about. And for me, you have costs going up across the board, whether it's people or materials. That's a huge trend. And that's not going down anytime soon, you have interest rates starting to go up. So capital is going to be getting a little bit uh, more expensive. 
-hmm. And you have, I mean, you also, I mean, the world is getting more competitive. People are, you know, coming back out of COVID and where, um, you know, the, the biggest worry is that how much of this sort of the European situation and the horrible tragedy and the war and all the consequences of that that's happening, that's, that's one more thing. I don't know if it's a straw that broke the camel's back, but it's, it's not a simple thing to have gas prices go up for consumers. Um, that, had, that has effects all over the economy. And all of those things, when you, when you put them together, consumers start to worry. Consumers start to pull back a little bit and become a bit more nervous. You're like, well, every time I go to the gas station, it's 10% higher. And if that happens week after week after week, you're going to start reallocating your budget a little bit. Yeah, no, it's noticeable. Uh, you know, I can, I can tell you that, uh, you know, since I, I've, I've worked from home during the pandemic, so I've taken over the grocery shopping uh, for my wife who still has to go to, into her office. Uh, and so I'm more closely attuned to what's going on there. And definitely the cost of a grocery run is significantly more. Uh, uh, no doubt, I, you know, everybody feels the gas prices and that's also happening on my utilities, my gas bill, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, natural gas bill and uh, everything, uh, mm -hmm. it, all the way to even, hey, you want to buy a house or move, sell the house you have and move to a different one. Well, I can sell that's the hard. one I have. I can sell the one I have, no problem, within hours probably, but I can't afford any of the other op the options of where to go yeah. if I were. Yeah. So uh, no, one hundred percent. And I think there's a, you know, you, you've had this sort of uh, two years where there was some government support, you know, uh, uh, for folks in terms of you know extra unemployment and uh, PPP and you know all these things. Uh, that, you know, uh, 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 kind of lifelines uh, that were opportunities to uh, grab onto that uh, aren't there anymore, have expired and uh, have moved on. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the, 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 it's coming home to roost right now as uh, uh, all these costs go up. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we don't want to say the R word, but, you know, it, 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 it's certainly on people's minds, I think. Yeah, and, and I think... As you unpack it a little bit, you start to think about, okay, what happens, you know, during these times, again, you and a retailer was, um, was looking at this, obviously there are things you spend money on, uh, you spend money on your, on your kids, your family, your pets, those things don't go away. You're looking for value in other areas, maybe you're you cut back on, you know, extras and luxuries and, you know, tighten the belt in certain areas, you're trying to get more you know, especially in things that you're spending every week on that make the bulk of your expenses like food, maybe you go eat out a couple times less. And maybe you're getting a few extra things at Costco versus wherever you normally shop at groceries in bulk or, you know, or something like that. And so as you think about like the, the theme becomes a more value oriented theme, uh, which benefits, I think, some sec some categories and sectors and sort of disadvantages others. Well, I guess I guess it, it it continues to emphasize that sort of the discounters, you know, have been doing have been doing great for some time, and at the other end, luxury's been doing you know pretty good. Those that had the money to shop luxury continued right. to shop it, and the middle struggles. 
Right. Uh, uh, the, the middle has not found its footing. Right. Uh, to this day, you know, and you have, uh, you know, the Steve Dennis's and others of the world that have been shouting this right for some time, you know, but you know, it's, it's definitely true that the, the trend continues. Um, Carlos, you've been awful quiet. The, uh, uh, how, so what's it feel like, you know, from the Denmark, you know, the Europe perspective, you know, uh, in terms of uh, economy wise, uh, you know, what's the, what's the feel? Uh, the feel here is that, well, utilities, my, my gas bill went up by 50%, which is a lot. But in Denmark, they, they are offering a grant, like for a lot of, uh, for the households, and they're saying that they want to become independent uh, from Russia in, in, in regards to, to gas. So they're definitely within, the, I think uh, it's a company called Orsted. Orsted. They said that within the next 10 years, mm. they're going to definitely focus on um, uh, renewables and they're not going to depend on Russia anymore, Russian gas. So they have this like 10 year run now that they have a contract and they have to uh, fulfill their obligations. You can definitely feel also that groceries, uh, the price of uh, groceries uh, increased a lot. So that's that's another thing. People are uh, going out a bit less, you know, and this is weird because uh, myself coming from Brazil, you're used to inflation. But when you, you know, when you're in Denmark where you usually like have negative uh, interest rates like especially for uh, like banks you have interest rates that are negative and now people are feeling that well they're paying more for, for groceries they're paying more for energy there's something uh, weird right so the the sentiment isn't isn't the best also i'd say like like rick was saying people are a bit um was saying uh it's not scared but you know um the trust uh, or, you know, the willingness of, of spending money. And I think people are pulling back. That's, uh, that's what I feel here as well. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's switch topics and hopefully, we'll, we'll hope the, the, the economy finds a, you know, finds a solid footing uh, and we'll move on for now. So uh, you had uh, recently uh, written about EU and the Digital Markets Act. Rick, uh, you know, and as as someone, you know, really kind of my day job currently is, mm -hmm. I, you know, I work with a company that does live chat and messaging uh, for brands across the globe. And so, you know, we already we've already personally, I, I understand how difficult implementing GDPR mm -hmm. was uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, kind of uh, uh, the ramifications of, of that law. And so now here comes the EU. Uh, and they are forcing, are looking to force a lot of new requirements. Uh, you know, it, it looks like it's mainly aimed at big at big tech, but uh, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts in this area. Yeah, it's it's obviously very new, and I don't, I don't even think the full legislation has been written yet. Or still, it, still being yeah, formed. It, it's still being formed. You know, and usually those things take a couple of months to to shake out. It looks like it's the one big thing I noticed was about messaging mm. and you can kind of see it in the U S with like messenger and WhatsApp and texts and iMessage and they're all a little different and everyone looks, you know, there, there's so many different fragmented platforms. Uh, EU um, has said that, you know, they're going to try and standardize some of those things, which uh, it's, it's an interesting 
you know, question, is that the role of government or the markets? And I think mm -hmm. Europe uh, in the US, that would be a, almost a ridiculous. It is. Uh, a, it's a ridiculous question. We know it, the it's, answer. It's, it's, it's the market. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a ridiculous question, but in Europe, that's not the case. And so if you think about, um, you know, where does this, where does this lead? Um, you know, again, you have such a fragmented marketplace in, in Europe compared to the United States was much more hom homogenous. It's absolutely in their interest more to make things interoperable than, than there is the United States. And so I think that that's the genesis of a lot of it, number one. And then second is, it doesn't hurt to give a black eye to some of these big American companies you know, at the, at the same time that are that they see is potentially preying or or taking advantage of consumers. Well, I mean that that's actually helpful uh, your answer because uh, I struggled uh, a little bit to understand why interoperability would be beneficial. To be honest, you know the the way what I use WhatsApp for uh, is so that I have easy communication with my over overseas and out of country right. friends. To be right. quite honest, and uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I use iMessage, you know, for you know, basically talking to family and you know things, you know, personal things, that sort of thing, not necessarily business. What is iMessage? Uh, I'm sorry, is it? Oh, that's it. That's the that is uh, the Apple uh, oh, right. uh, messaging yeah. platform, yeah. Uh, which is a little. Uh, it offers a little more features than just straight old SMS. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, which when I talk to my daughter, I have to use plain old SMS because she's on an Android, and uh, iMessage is not interoperable operable with what happens over on Android. So mm -hmm. it's just plain old simple, you know, text messaging yeah. uh, when we communicate. So it's weird. Um, so um, hold on, get back to my notes, and uh, uh, let's see what's going on uh, else in the news. Uh, I see. Uh, uh, one of the stories I've been following that I found interesting was uh, on the grocery side and Kroger and uh, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond's new partnership. Uh, have you had any time uh, to uh, form any thoughts on that, Rick? Yeah, I was, I was looking at that. Actually, I wrote about it this morning, um, which is, uh, you know, Thursday. I'm sure this is coming out later. But um, they, you know, again, like any of these partnerships, it has to work for both sides. I think Bed Bath & Beyond is transforming, but the question is, are they transforming quickly enough? And can do they have enough distribution for their private label brands that are gonna be kind of the core of their profitability story going forward? And on the other side, you have Kroger, which is being, um, I think they're investing, they're doing a lot of, Good things. They had a tie up with Instacart. They have a big partnership with Ocado. They seem to be trying a little bit of everything, uh, to be honest with you, which is actually the same, the same thing I think about Albertsons, that they seem to be trying a little bit of everything. Uh, but Kroger, I would say even to a greater degree, um, where you know, I think the simple theory is that consumers value cons convenience. If you can consolidate trips, then that could be worthwhile. Kroger has a much, many more stores than Bed Bath and & Beyond, and they're visited more frequently. So if Bed Bath can get in Kroger stores, then that's, that's valuable. That's kind of number one. And then second is, I think competition in grocery is getting more fierce. Uh, online grocery has really accelerated in the last couple of years, and that really plays to Amazon's strengths 
in, in the space and you still kind of have Instacart kicking around, but you have Walmart who's you know, the number one grocer in the US that is building its omni capabilities and its fulfillment capabilities as well. And so I think Kroger feels like if we're only in grocery, that's not a good thing for us long-term. Yeah. Uh, we, need, we, we need to broaden our focus so that if we lose one thing, we have a little bit of a multi-category basket uh, to weather the storm. <laughs> I guess the, the, the warning is uh, don't lose focus on what you're good at, however, yeah. uh, with that. But I, yeah, I, I can see that. Look, uh, you know, Walmart did a pretty good job of winning me over, you know, with all the new kind of delivery fulfillment, you know, online shopping options. Uh, it, it got, you know, pretty good, you know, I thought. And uh, yeah. uh, where I was exclusively a Kroger shopper pre-pandemic, I, I, I shop a lot at Walmart now, uh -huh. I, I would say. So I, I can see where in a bigger picture, a broader picture where Kroger would be looking for ways to be, re you know, uh, relevant, uh, bigger, uh, to be more relevant. Mm -hmm. I, I, it, it feels to me like the deal is is probably better, is, is even bigger for Bed Bath & Beyond, you yeah. know, more beneficial for these guys, right? You know, where they are definitely one of those that are in the middle that we talked right. about that, that struggled a bit. Yeah, um, I mean, look, putting a marketplace on the Kroger website I don't expect it's going to move the needle a whole lot because consumer has to find it. And oh, yeah. know, it, it's, it's not simple. Uh, I mean, I looked around on there to search for baby products and yeah, there's a link to it from the press release, but the consumer <laughs> isn't going to be able to find it. Right. Um, so the digital component, I think is going to be not that interesting. Plus that the digital component is not going to play with the curbside and all these other things that target is doing and Walmart is doing um kind of kind of from that side of things so um the effect maybe of this, this is, is remains to be seen maybe this is you know where the metaverse finally comes into play you know where uh, it's maybe that's how i find these things right yeah you know, uh, Kroger uh, escapes to a virtual reality uh <laughs> a, a, away from amazon and walmart right Carlos? Yeah, sure. Unless you so, jump in. Yeah, uh, Rick, there's a, there's a post of yours where you talk about Shopify. And I'm going to ask you that because uh, I work with a few e-com platforms. So I'm very keen on, on listening to your, your take here. So you say basically that Shopify uh, still wins because it works better. And then you talk about their checkout and their app store. Uh, but then... In your opinion, what's the what's the opportunity for for other platforms? So, for example, Vitex, maybe we heard of them, is a client of mm -hmm. mine here in Poland. You know, they they talk a lot about composable commerce these days, and there's so there's so many names for the same stuff sometimes, uh, composable, right. headless, and you name it. So, yeah. what's the opportunity for uh, platforms like Vitex and commerce tools? And you know, yeah. Shopify, they also they have the, their Shopify Plus which is, I mean, they're trying to go for the enterprises with it, right? And I mean, I would love to hear your take on, yeah. on, on this. Yeah, I, I think Shopify is, so we're, we're talking about roughly two separate markets mm -hmm. by and large. You have small and medium brands that start on Shopify and then grow up to, you know, a little bit more. Again, there are lots of big revenue numbers on Shopify, but once 
people start to get into a 50, 100 million, then they, you know, many of them have more complexity in their business that maybe Shopify doesn't fit. And the tier above it is where traditionally has been something like a sales force. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at VTEX is it's trying to be sort of the alternative to Salesforce. That's kind of how I see it. It's a cloud-based provider. It has many different modules. It's composable in a way, but it's also, they're trying to put everything under one roof. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they aren't trying to say like, oh, only use our PIM or only use our OMS like some of the other headless providers. They're saying like, you want to use our whole thing, plus our marketplace and and that's that's what makes us different, similar to what Salesforce is doing. Um, and so I kind of view them as trying to be seen a little bit as the more modern, and, and they're focused on global brands. Right. Like if you have entities in multiple countries, that doesn't describe most of Shopify's business. Mm-hmm. You know, the eighty percent. Whereas VTEX grew up in the South American market. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, right. And yeah, the and footprint they're, in they're Brazil a, is huge. Yeah, they're a dominant provider in the in, the, in those markets. Yeah. And I think um, they've even forced some moves from Salesforce to acquire providers in that markets to keep pace with it. And so mm-hmm. I think um, as I think it's very hard. Personally, I think it's very hard for VTEX in the in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you when you're looking at like if you're going to do an rfp for a global cloud provider that is maybe not truly headless i Mm -hmm. I would say it wasn't necessarily built that way but it's it's cloud-based uh it's a lower cost of ownership than than traditional e-commerce vtex is probably on the list somewhere Um, sure right sure and and the the next the next question then is you talk about amazon and at least this is what I uh, I'm interested also in in your uh, in your in your view. Like, why is it Shopify putting some? It's probably the only provider that is putting some fight against Amazon today. <laughs> what are what, what is it that they're trying to do? Well, yeah. and, and let me jump in uh, quickly and just say, you know, I th- didn't I just see or read that the actual you know Shopify is uh, actually ahead of Amazon's. Uh, uh, marketplace, you know, in terms of visits and revenue, did I or am I did I dream that? They're they're still, you know, it's something like a third to a half. That's that's the number I see. Something like 40 percent was the last number I saw several months ago. Okay. Uh, um, especially when you're just measuring, and usually people are comparing it to the marketplace revenue, uh, not the first party Amazon revenue, and so. Uh, Amazon overall is still huge because you can also add in the first party business um, too. I, I think, like, look, first of all, I think there are certain employees at Shopify in the last four or five years that really wanted to create a narrative. Uh, and so it makes, a, it makes a nice story, it makes nice PR. Mm-hmm. Um, journal, people like to write about it. Employees like to get excited about it, um, even if they're not necessarily waking up every day and competing with Amazon mm-hmm. you know, directly because Shopify is a software company. Amazon is a, is a retailer. Uh, Amazon's a lot of things. So one of the things Amazon is, is a retailer. <laughs> um, and um, so I, I think that's where some of it comes from. And if, and if you kind of look at 
it, to me, it's it, the bigger clash has always been the clash of sort of the worldview. Mm -hmm. Amazon has the worldview of Amazon is that everything's here. Key mm -hmm. your account already is with us. You're going to get it tomorrow. Why shop anywhere else? It's um, true. <laughs> and it's, it's a pretty amazing proposition that's turned out to be correct. Um, but what it doesn't mean is that people care about the brand you buy when you go there. Mm -hmm. If I bought Amazon, I could buy three or four things depending on like, oh, I, maybe I went to buy this brand. But if they show me something that has better reviews and is a little bit cheaper, I might try one of those things because I'm already here on Amazon. That's, that's Amazon's thinking. Shopify has almost the opposite worldview is that brands matter, quality, you know, quality matters, your presentation matters, and mm -hmm. all your typical brand retail things, Shopify really wants to be the champion of the brand and, and that sort of merchant focused mindset. And Amazon is sort of the, you know, Amazon is in it for them. Let's be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone's in so it for themselves from a different point of view, but um, that that's to me where the worldviews uh, are, are, are shifted a little bit. And, and just and, to correct my earlier statement, uh, so you are right. Shopify is fifty percent as large as the Amazon yeah. marketplace at one hundred and seventy-five billion, uh, with Amazon being at three ninety. Just uh, I went yeah. quickly looked that up after I realized I was wrong. Yeah. Go ahead, no, my, my next question is when you advise companies, Rick, uh, what's your take on, you know, how much you should have of your sales on a marketplace, say Amazon, mm -hmm. and how much uh, you should, you know, bet on, on your own brand? Because you cannot have the data, right, when you're selling on Amazon. I mean, you're just making sales, but you don't acquire the customer, so to say. But especially when you're going abroad, like one of my customers, they they help, cust uh, they help brands go abroad via Amazon. Mm. Uh, but then there's always the question, right? How do we acquire this customer? It's, a, it's, a, it's maybe a cheaper way of getting started, but not very sustainable in the long run. Yeah, look, a lot of it depends uh, on, on the goals of the brand. If it's a mm. brand that wants to be known as, as, the, as the brand, then, and you're selling um, luxury upscale, uh, specific merchandise, I think marketplaces aren't necessarily the best thing except for certain outlets, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe live shopping or, or, or luxury sites like Farfetch. But if you go, there are so many brands that are quote unquote white goods, you know, who, who sells it is, doesn't matter as much as does it work? Mm -hmm. Like, why do I have uh, an iPhone charger made by anchor? You know, they, they started their business on Amazon. Now they're a multi-billion dollar, multi-channel brand, but Amazon is the vast majority of their business. You know, yeah. do they care or not? Ultimately, consumers are shopping everywhere. Mm -hmm. Consumers are price shopping on Amazon first. Then they go to the brand website to figure out like, is this a real thing? Then I should trust it. And then they kind of go everywhere else. Maybe they might go to Macy's or something and as a, as a, as a less resort, but obviously every category is a little different. So it's hard to make these, you know, generalizations, but um, the short answer is Amazon for most people, for, for most traditional brands that want to be brands, it's about customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. And it is a huge, huge mistake to ignore the place that 70% of people start their product searches. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Rick, the time has flown by, so let me let me let me let me have one. I have one last question for you. Uh, so, and to, and to lead into that, I, I was at NRF back in uh, mm -hmm. January. You know, which is uh, the, for those that don't know the you know the biggest retail focused show. Uh, and I will say that attendance for that was disappointing. Uh, vendor attendance was so-so, and the retailer, uh, you know, uh, attendance was was bad, in my opinion. Uh, uh, it, it definitely was a, a skeleton of its normal self. Were you at Shop Talk? Yeah, I, I was at Shop Talk. How was that? Um, I think it came off pretty well. Oh, good. Uh, good attendance seemed mostly back, at least 80 80 percent plus of what it its previous size it certainly it wasn't noticeably quiet or good, missing good. vendors pulling out none of the stuff that happened at nrf or ces right you know where huge big pavilions pulled out and i don't think shop talk had that um that situation so it was a big um this was really one of the first biggest events where a lot of people in my network um you know were telling me this is the first event that they've been back in a long time so. Yeah, great. Well, that's good to hear because I look forward to actually getting out into the world again. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be sustainable, at least the way the world was in January, but we all know everything changes uh, so quickly. Yeah. Uh, okay. So good to hear. So Rick, amazing. Uh, we'll love to have you back. You know, obviously uh, uh, you have lots more to say and share. So hopefully we'll get an opportunity to uh, spend some time with you uh, again in the near future. Uh, and uh, both Carlos and I really thank you for taking time out of your busy day to, to chat with us. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Scott and Carlos. I, I appreciate the time and look forward to coming back soon. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Thank you.